Imagine, if you would, a terrible dream. A terrible dream where you awake in the middle of the night with sweating and this profuse terror that all you have left is the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way through Revelation is gone. No more the Gospels. No more account about Jesus and the love that he had for us. What a horrible dream that would be. And then you wake up and you realize it was just a dream. It was just a nightmare, you may say. But I want you to picture for just a moment this morning as we begin our study together that in some ways, if the New Testament was removed or you did not have access to the New Testament for an extended period of time, the story of Jesus is still present. The account of Jesus is still readable. And the identity of Jesus is still visible. And I want us to use an Old Testament psalm written some 900 to 1,000 years before Jesus, where David authored a brief psalm of praise and of royal lament about God and about his identity and about his son to see Jesus. There are, I believe, a lot of very effective ways of reading the Old Testament. But one of the ways that we can study the Old Testament together and the way that we're going to choose to do so today with this very brief seven-verse psalm is by looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And seeing where his presence is provided for us. And so we invite you to open your Bibles to the 110th Psalm today. A Psalm that we maybe don't read real often. But I came across it a few months ago and I thought I would like to study this a little bit further. By putting a lens on Jesus and his identity by looking at the 110th Psalm. Thank you so much for being here. We have already benefited by being together today. The prayer that Brother Cameron led us in was not only heartfelt, but it was effective in praising our God for who he is, what he is, and all the good things that he has done. Caleb has done a marvelous job. We are blessed with so many good song leaders that we are sometimes take that for granted, and we're thankful for that. And then Brother Mitch did a great job of using those couple of verses in Galatians chapter 1 to help us understand the sacrifice and the momentous occasion where Jesus laid down his life for us. We have so many people who are serving behind the scenes. We have people who are cooking for those who are sick. We have people who are making sure the lawn is well manicured, the restrooms are cleaned, and we have all these things happening, and sometimes we take that for granted. But we're thankful for the work that you are doing here at Northfield Boulevard. I'd like to read Psalm 110, and I'd like to read it very deliberately and a little bit slowly. Since it is so brief, we can afford to spend some extra time on the text itself. A Psalm of David where he says, beginning in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. 
The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. There are a number of phrases in the 110th Psalm that you're familiar with. When you think about the idea of say to your enemies at your footstool, when you think about a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, these are either concepts that are directly or indirectly repeated in the New Testament. You see why this psalm is so ripe for an understanding of Jesus. You know, if we were trying to give a description of Jesus, we could use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I'm challenging you today to only use Psalm 110, at least for the next few moments, to identify Jesus the Christ. When we think about the 110th Psalm, it is described as a royal psalm. There are royal psalms, there are prayerful psalms, there are psalms of hallelujahs. There are all kinds of different psalms in the way that we can categorize them. But it depicts the Messiah as a king, as the one through whom salvation will flow. It is authored by David, and we need to remember that David himself is a king. And you recall back in Acts chapter 2, where Peter in in that great sermon on the day of Pentecost talked about who was David talking about and who was David talking to when he talks about, let the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And the other thing that is interesting about Psalm 110 that I think we need to appreciate is that it involves not only a king, but it involves a priest, which was a non-conventional or unconventional combination in Old Testament times. In fact, it was written that you could not be a king and a priest at the same time, with the great exception of who? Melchizedek. All the way back in the book of Genesis, as we'll study in just a few weeks on our Wednesday night studies in Genesis. And of course, who else becomes a great priest and king? Well, spoiler alert, Jesus is our priest and Jesus is our king. The other thing that I think is important to note is that we're going to divide this particular psalm into thirds, where verse 4 is kind of the center Verses 1 through 3 are the introduction. Verses 5 through 7 are the, are the, the end. But verse 4 is this center anchor point that fits nicely in a seven-verse psalm. But rather than view this psalm in just a general way, I want us to dig in a little bit today. And I want us to view it by establishing the identity of Jesus in four particular ways. So we're going to say Jesus is this kind of a leader or this kind of a priest or this type of a judge or this type of a victor. If you're following along the outline today. So we're starting with, first of all, that Jesus is identified as the superior leader. He's not just a leader. He is the superior leader. He is magnificent. He is beyond compare. And I appreciate so very much our brother Cameron leading us in prayer this morning and acknowledging that God is supreme and that there is no one in comparison to him. And when we think about Jesus, he is indeed the superior leader. 
Verse 2 says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, and you shall rule in the midst of your enemies. So we're really focusing in just on verses 1 and 2 for the next three or four moments. I really like where the phrase is used, sit at my right hand. And when we talk about the right hand, it's where we say, you are my right hand man, or you're my right hand woman. We understand what that means. In fact, where uh, we get to the story of Jacob and his sons, you recall the last son was initially not named Benjamin. The original name for Benjamin was translated as, again, we'll talk about, I'm trying to advertise our Wednesday night study coming up in Genesis that we're really looking forward to. At least I'm looking forward to it, and I know you are as well. But originally, Benjamin was Benoni, or the idea of son of sorrow. Well, how would you like to be called, you're the son of my sorrow? (laughs) And so instead, the name was changed to son of the right hand, or right hand son, to Benjamin. And so we understand that when someone is at the right hand, they are, according to the NLT, a place of honor. Rod is an idea of a scepter. And we remember this from our recent study of Esther, that the king would hold down his rod or hold down his scepter as a, as a sign of authority and as a sign of acceptance for who was coming in to have an audience with him. But it belongs to Jesus. Compare this to two New Testament passages. First of all, in Matthew 22, and then we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. Here. And you say, wait a minute, I thought you said we're not using the New Testament. Well, we are going to compare the New Testament because we're going to see where the New Testament verifies everything that Psalm 110 is talking about. So even if we didn't have Matthew 22, we still get the concept found within. But Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41, the Pharisees were gathered together and they asked him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He said, the son of David. And then they said, or he, I'm sorry, he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did they dare question him anymore. Interestingly enough, chapter 23 then launches into all of the different complaints that Jesus has against these religious leaders of the first century, where he says, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, because you are concerned about one thing and you are missing the weightier matters of the law. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Colossians is described as perhaps the most Christ-centered letter of the entire New Testament, where Jesus is the focus, the idea of Christ being the focus. And in chapter 1 and verse 17, he is before all things. Who's the he? That's Jesus, of course. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things consist. If you like writing things in your Bible, you might underline the word all because it's not a matter of some of the things belong to Jesus. All things belong to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell 
and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Notice how many times the word his or he is used or him is used in reference to Jesus the Christ. You know, usually when we look at the word uh, me, myself, and I in the Bible, it's, it's to understand the idea of selfishness. Jesus is not being selfish, but the focus is all on Jesus because he is the superior leader. He is the one to whom we go for all direction. And this must be true, not just in principle, but might I suggest that it is in practice. And what I mean by that simply is that we cannot just talk about Jesus as being our leader. We have to live that out in the way that we study, in the way that we pray, in the way that we serve. In every aspect of our lives, Jesus, as we said last Sunday morning, is effectively our boss. He is our supervisor, and it's to him that we answer. So Jesus is the superior leader. Let me suggest, secondly, that we are introduced to Jesus in verse 4 of Psalm 110 as our eternal priest. The Lord has sworn... And will not relent that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When you look at verse 4, it is indeed the, the center of the psalm. It is the apex of the psalm. It is the climax of the psalm. And many see verse 4 as the central aspect or theme of the psalm. So if you understand verse 4, that you are a priest Forever. If you like circling things in your Bible, the word forever might be circled because it's the idea that not just a priest temporarily, but a priest forever. We'll go and look at Hebrews in just a moment, but your mind is already on Hebrews, isn't it? Because you're thinking about the idea of, of temporal priests versus eternal priest, singular. Many see verse 4 as the center. And it's interesting to look at verse 4 where it says, The Lord has sworn in the New King James Version. And it says, He will not relent. That tells me that it is serious. And that tells me that it is assured. Those two things are central to the claim that is about to be made by David. Now, this is one of those questions that when we get to heaven and we get to sit down with Peter and Paul and James and John and Moses and David, you might want to ask, hey, David, when you were writing this in the 110th Psalm, did you fully comprehend what you were saying here? Or were you just working with the Holy Spirit and pinning it, understanding some of it? I don't know exactly what all he understood about this. I'm convinced, or at least persuaded, that he doesn't fully see the picture because he didn't have the advent of Jesus 10 centuries later who would be this priest. But I think he understood that this was something spectacular with the idea of an eternal priest. A priest forever? That makes no sense on the surface. A priest forever is something that is contrary to common sense because we know in our good studies of the Old Testament that a priest would live and a priest would die. A priest would live and a priest would die. And this would go on and on and on. And so the idea of a priest living forever, that is an impossibility. Or is it? 
because he is instead a priest according to the order of Melchizedek as written in Hebrews chapter 4. So we knew, or Hebrews chapter 5, we knew that we were going to go to Hebrews. And so let's look here just very briefly at the fifth chapter of Hebrews beginning in verse 4. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, here it is, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, To him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now watch verses 8, 9, and 10. Though he was a son, what? He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as what? As high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say And hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So we need to appreciate the fact that Jesus is not just a leader that is superior to all others, but he is a priest who will exist for all time. So remember, pretend we don't have Hebrews and pretend we don't have Matthew and Colossians to reference. Already we are getting a picture of Jesus as being a superior leader and an eternal priest And thirdly, as the righteous judge. Go back to verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. And he shall execute the heads of many countries. Justice includes an execution. And I thought that this was interesting. If you look at the text itself and you kind of dig into the text and the way verses 5 and 6 are worded, it is literally that he, the judge, shall strike through kings. That's interesting to think about for me. The idea that he shall strike through kings. We know, based on Romans chapter 13, we referenced it in our communal prayer today, that all leaders are subject to God and to his power and his doing things. The fact is, is God's righteousness and God's wrath are not separate from one another. The two things are married together. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 is a text that you're familiar with where it says that vengeance is mine or vengeance belongs to the Lord. Allow him to be the one who repays And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, in Matthew's account of the life and the the, the doings of Jesus and and, and the way that he went about teaching, he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. I want you to notice verse 6 and just spend the next minute or two on verse 6 by noticing three aspects of verse 6. Verse 6 says, he shall judge among the nations, he shall fill the places with dead bodies, he shall execute the heads of many countries. Depending on the version from which you are reading this morning, rather than the word nations, you may have the word heathens. Now, heathen is a very strong word, is it not? 
uh, if, if someone calls you a, a heathen and they mean it seriously, uh, that's not a, a, a kind thing to be said to you or about you. They are insulting you. They are saying that you are anti-God, that you are anti-spiritual. They're saying that you are opposed to the things that are otherwise righteous and good. But God says that Jesus is going to come and he shall judge among the nations. Our God will judge among the heathens. Secondly, he will fill the places with dead bodies wherein destruction will be complete. And thirdly, the execution of the heads of many countries reminded me of Daniel chapter 2. Remember the great statue that Daniel, speaking of dreaming about and envisioning and talking about, that Daniel had that interpretation and he says, but of that kingdom, there will be what? No end. There'll be no conclusion to the kingdom that's going to come and destroy all the other kingdoms that are there because this is the righteous judge that we follow. So Jesus is a superior leader. Jesus is an eternal priest. Jesus is the righteous judge. And finally, Jesus is the triumphant victor. He's the one who's going to claim victory. We sing in songs, O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever, because the victory comes through Jesus. If there's no Jesus, there's no victory. And that's one of the points that I made recently in a, in a, in a post that I had pointed at, put out that there's, there's no such thing as salvation through Muhammad or through Buddha or through a preacher in the 20th or 21st century. Salvation is alone through Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, it's not a matter of if, and, or but. It is there. That Jesus says, I'm the only way for you to access victory and salvation. Verse 7 of the text reads for us the following. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Victory is always associated, not just with the Lord, but with his people. You and I are associated with victory because of what God has done for us. I like the NIV here. Those of you that are using multiple translations may have come across this, where it says, he will lift his head high. You know, sometimes we think about someone lifting their head high as being haughty or as being arrogant. That's not the case. Jesus says, I will claim victory. No one will suffer except those to whom I will that they would suffer. All people will find salvation through me. And I am the captain. I am the victor. In many ways, it comes full circle because of the fact that we knew that he was the eternal priest, the superior leader, and the righteous judge. There are two ways to see the brook, I might suggest here, where he says, he shall drink of the brook by the wayside. One is to think about the idea of what Jesus himself talks about, where he says, Will you drink the cup with me? The idea of drinking a cup in old language is the idea of experiencing some sort of pain or discomfort. And some have suggested that Jesus here is being introduced as drinking of the brook by the wayside. 
And then some have suggested that it's the idea of drinking as in refreshment because of victory. Not taking the time to drink during battle, but now that we have been victorious, now we can take Paul's and receive refreshment. Either way, victory with Jesus Christ is assured. And that reminded me of, yes, another New Testament passage where in 1 John chapter 5 and in verse 4, Jesus, or John says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome, and that is our faith. I think it's important to see Jesus as a superior leader, as the eternal priest, as the righteous judge, and as the triumphant victor. But if you're following along and you're paying attention, which hopefully you are, you're a good group of Bible students, and we appreciate that. You've noticed that we skipped a verse. There's a verse that we didn't spend any time talking about, and that's verse 3. Because I want us to conclude with verse 3, where it says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The NIV actually says, will be willing. And that reminds me of this fact that I wanted to close with today and then brings us to our invitation for those who may not be children of God. And that is the army of the Lord is filled with volunteers, those who are willing to serve. Back in days before I was born, but there are some who are here who are lived in the 60s and the early 70s, if not before, and you understand what a conscript was, you understood, and there are some of you who are here today who knew what it was like to go to the mail in 1968 or 1969, or to know whether or not it was going to be you or your best friend or your brother who was going to be drafted, conscripted, to fight for the United States. Since that time, we have fortunately not had to do that. And I think we can all agree that that's a pleasant thing to rejoice in. We're thankful to God that young men and young women who serve, and we're thankful for them, but they are all volunteers. They were not forced into that position in the last 50 years or so. The same is true when it comes to service to God. Verse 3 says, your people shall be volunteers. I, I, I hope that there is not a single person who is listening today online in the parking lot or in this building that is saying, I just wish that I didn't have to come here today. No, we're all here because we're volunteers. We're all here because we aren't getting uh, some sort of reward for it, though we're getting a reward for it. But you understand what I mean. We are volunteers in the army of the Lord. Your people, God says, shall be volunteers. I think we learn a lot from the Old Testament. And that's one of the points that I wanted us to make and today. That we ought never undervalue the Old Testament because in it we see these powerful glimpses of those things that we otherwise learn about in the New Testament. The identity of Jesus is seen in these seven verses as the superior leader, the eternal priest, the
the righteous judge, and the triumphant victor. What about you? Will you be his volunteer today? No one is going to force you or will encourage you, (laughs) will beg you, will plead with you. We may nudge you. We may bother you. (laughs) We may pester you about becoming a Christian, but it's because we love you. But ultimately, it's your choice to serve our God and to be his volunteer. And we hope that you'll make that choice this morning by being baptized, having your sins washed away, having repented of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus as the Christ, and making it known that you are ready to become one of his children. We are ready to help you in that process today. If you want to know more about the church, maybe you're listening, you're not here in person, and you say, I'm curious about this Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ We're happy to study with you. We are happy to answer your questions. And we are happy to assist anybody who is ready and willing to become a child of God or those who are already Christians. And you say, it's time for me to make some sort of a a, a change for the better, to live more faithfully in the future, because after all, I'm his volunteer. We are ready to help you. And so if we can be of assistance in a spiritual way, we would love that opportunity. Let us know while together we stand and while we sing.